So super. So welcome, everyone. Everyone can hear me. I see lots of friends in the audience. So nice. Hello, Richard. Um, so I'm Amy Davidson, and obviously we have a trio of experts, as you've heard already, on the subject of accounting for our cost of carbon. Um, I will introduce them and then just give a little introduction before we kick off into the panel. And as was mentioned before by Bill, we'll do pretty much half the time discussion here and then open it up for the audience for the uh, rest of the, the session and get you out on time. And hopefully someone will signal if for some reason we're going over because this is such an important conversation. So to my left, I have Gavin Donahue, who is the president and CEO of the Independent Power Producers of New York. Next to him is Bob Litterman, um, who is the founder of Kipos Capital and also a board member of Resources for the Future. And to his left is Mark Hofstad, who is a fellow and director of the Carbon Pricing Institute at the Resources for the Future. So again, you couldn't have three of the smartest people, smarter people on this panel to discuss this, um, have this conversation. So we heard a little bit from Bill about, you know, why we're talking about pricing carbon. But if, as most of you know that uh, last fall, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report about the urgency of 1.5 degrees Celsius and what that means for this warming world that we are living in now. Um, really what the big takeaway is is that we have a pretty strict time clock now that we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And to if we're going to be on path by the end of this decade, 2030, we should be cutting global emissions in half. So a very steep trajectory um, off of what business as usual is. Um, we already know the planet has warmed one degree Celsius, and we can also see those effects already happening, whether it's the fires in Australia or California or floods and sea level rise already around the world. So pricing carbon is considered one of the key tools in our toolbox to address this issue. Um, and it's actually a growing uh, conversation around the world. Um, so luckily it's also something that's happening as we had just heard here in New York State and hopefully at the federal level too. So I'm gonna start off with a question um, with Bob. So more of the big picture question. So Bob, can you explain really what makes pricing carbon such an urgent priority and what is the cost of delay? <clears throat> okay, well thanks Amy, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my background is in risk management and uh, not pricing carbon is really the root of the uh, cause for climate change. There's risk associated with the externality of emissions. We're not pricing it, therefore we're creating too much emissions, we're creating too much risk. Historically, economists have focused on the expected outcomes, and that's a mistake. That's uh, not taking into account worst case scenarios. Uh, there's a couple of lessons from financial risk management, which is my background, that apply to uh, uh, managing climate risk. And the first one is just that. You have to think about worst case outcomes. Now, in the financial markets, we don't talk about worst case because no one knows what worst case is. We talk about extreme but plausible scenarios. And we are not taking into account extreme but plausible scenarios. We have many tipping points out there that we don't really know when and how they might be crossed and how they might interact. You mentioned the IPCC 1.5 degree report. That was an incredibly important report. We are not going to hit 1.5. We're lucky if we price emissions immediately. I call it slam on the brakes. Then we might be able to get to 1.7 or 
okay? And there's a lot of uncertainty. But IPCC pointed out that we're going to lose 70 to 90% of coral reefs at 1.5. At 2 degrees, we're going to lose over 99% of coral reefs. So just think about the planet that we're going to leave. And right now, if we're at 1.8, getting to 2 means we have to start pricing emissions at a high level globally within six years. Every three years of delay is another tenth of a degree at the maximum, which we're going to hit somewhere around 2070 or 2080. If we get to zero emissions by 2050, it takes several more decades before we get to equilibrium temperature. So the risk is exploding right now. We have no time to delay. Had we priced emissions 20 years ago, we would be in good shape. That's how recent uh, you know, we crossed that line of creating an existential threat to the future of humanity. Another uh, lesson from risk management is that uh, the purpose of risk management is not to minimize risk. Goldman Sachs hired me as head of risk management. They didn't want to reduce risk. They wanted to make sure that the risks are priced appropriately. Okay, and that's basically the problem. We're not pricing the risk. In fact, globally, incentives are strongly in the direction of subsidizing fossil fuel consumption and production. And as long as that is the case, emissions are going to continue to increase. That's the trajectory that we're on. Now, I have no doubt we're going to price emissions. It's a question of when and how quickly and at what level. And uh, economists, I would say, Mark, I'm not going to point the finger, but economists, I think, have done a terrible disservice because 30 years ago they started talking about pricing expected damages. And so they came up with what's often called the uh, slow policy ramp. Yes, we should price emissions. Of course, there's an externality, but start out at a low level and then ease on the brakes over time. Uh, when you take risk into account, you don't ease on the brakes. You slam on the brakes because you don't know you have to be prepared for those uh, worst case outcomes. Another lesson from risk management, you know, economists often distinguish risk from uncertainty. Risks are uh, outputs of models, things like value at risk or volatility. Uh, uncertainty is what we actually manage. The world does not operate according to a model. We have to be prepared. And so what does that mean for policy? It means that you have to be prepared uh, for those, uh, you know, things to be different than you expected. And it means that you have to err on the side of caution. So if we have a model that says the right price for emissions is somewhere between $50 and $100, the uncertainty means you have to err on the side of caution, which is at the high end of that. And no one knows what the right uh, price for emissions is. Uh, I won't try and convince you that I know, because I don't know. But what I do know is that lack of certainty about uh, where to price it means that you should be uh, operating at the high end of a range. I, I will quote the uh, UN at uh, their last uh, IPCC report. They had a table about the limitations of economic models of uh, pricing carbon. They said the trouble with these models is you can get any number from $2 a ton to $200 a ton. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite that wide, but I would say 50 to 150 is probably a reasonable range of uncertainty. So you can see where I'm going to come out on where we should be pricing carbon at a very high price, and it will immediately create a phase change in the economy when we do that. And we will do that. And that's really the, the final lesson uh, from risk management. And it's a very important lesson. Time is not on your side. When you're managing risk, if you have enough time, you can solve almost any problem. It's when you run out of time that 
a problem can become a catastrophe. And we have no idea how much time we have, but it's very little time. We should have done this 20, 30, 40 years ago. Today, as I say, we're aiming toward 1.8, maybe over 2 degrees. And you know, science has really uh, changed over the last 10 years. It used to be scientists said, well, 2 degrees is kind of where risk starts. 2 degrees is where extremely dangerous situations are. And one and a half could easily be the point of no return. It may be too late. That's just the reality. So what's going to happen is we are going to slam on the brakes. We can talk about how and why that's going to happen. But what I've been telling investors around the world is be prepared for a phase change in economics. Because once you price emissions, everything is going to change. And I sit on a uh, Commodity Futures uh, uh, Trading Commission uh, uh, subcommittee on climate-related market risk. And uh, we're going to write a report uh, that's coming out in June. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, we're worried uh, not only about the physical risks associated with climate, but also the transition risks, because there are going to be you know, significant changes in the economy when we price emissions. OK. So we started that out with a good. Just, just in case you, you know, <laughs> want to know where we're going. In case you where we are. <laughs> Actually, this morning, Christiana Figueros, who was one of the architects of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, phrased the, the urgency of the timing in a very interesting way. It's like this next 10 years um, is really when humans will have the ability to really control what happens. And then when we, if we miss this next 10-year window, then it really the planet's you know, impacts will, will sort of take over. And it'll be much, much harder for us to sort of control the direction of what will happen. And, basically nature will take over for us. So now we want to switch gears and come back to really what's exciting here in New York City or New York State um, is that the state is considering putting on a uh, carbon price. So Gavin, do you, uh, would you just share a little bit sort of what, what's happening here in New York State and and sort of why why it's happening at this moment? Sure, sure. Thank, thank you for having me. Thanks to EOJ. Um, first of all, just, just a little sidebar. Um, Carbon pricing in New York and the whole concept around carbon pricing actually started with my good friend Richard Kaufman, who actually was the man who actually endorsed the whole idea of us pursuing that study at the ISO. Um, so this has been going on for over two years in New York State. I'm, I'm happy to report that the generator sector, I, I represent uh, three quarters of all the generation in New York State. We pay over $700 million in taxes and employ about 30,000 people across the state. We have uh, been the leading cheerleader outside of the ISO uh, and I think some folks in the governor's office on carbon pricing. We are very supportive of putting a price on carbon. When I speak around the state on energy and environmental matters, I get a question all the time, Gavin, how can your folks be willing to pay more to generate electricity when New York is already the most expensive place in the country to do business? And I think what it comes down to is Efficient markets, transparency. As Bob said, we don't know what the price is today, but having it out there is really important because it will actually show uh, and, and mitigate some of the regulatory uncertainty that my folks that I represent deal with every day. Regulatory uncertainty, government in the marketplace picking winners and losers to achieve a policy objective is just wrongheaded for markets. It ultimately is going to stifle innovation. It's going to hurt consumers. Um, Sue Tierney uh, from the analysis group has studied this uh, on behalf of the ISO, so has the Brattle Group. I would encourage you 
uh, to go to the ISO website. They have an awful lot of information uh, on those studies. Um, in summary, where, where I think we are, we're ready to move. Uh, there is the proposal out there. Uh, folks in this room obviously would be interested in carbon or you wouldn't be here today. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try to do everything you can to push New York State, and particularly Governor Cuomo, to support carbon pricing. Um, the governor talks about a national leader on climate, and he's done an awful lot of good things on the environment uh, since he's been governor. But this would be the next phase. This, again, would show us as a national leader on carbon pricing. And if we do it in the market, I believe it ultimately will help rate payers over the long term and be better for the environment. Um, so, so those... And those are the couple things about where we are with the status of carbon pricing. Fantastic. So I'm going to switch over then to Mark because we're thinking, okay, states can price carbon. We actually see companies that put internal price on carbon. Um, and there's lots of different carbon pricing mechanisms, including uh, California and Quebec have a cap and trade system, so an actually interesting cross-border um, pricing system. Um, but what are some of the pitfalls maybe if it's a state by state, the sort of patchwork quilt that we're always talking about, which can be more challenging than if we had sort of a, a federal price on carbon. Um, so I think there's um, the first issue that everyone thinks of when you think of state policies, I think being problematic is this issue of leakage, which is just the idea that we can, instead of, if you put a, a carbon price in Washington state, you can just move the carbon-intensive industries to Oregon or Idaho or Montana or somewhere else that doesn't have a, a price on carbon. And so there's a real worry about uh, flight of industry. Um, and I think that is uh, potentially a problem. I think sometimes it's overstated by companies. Um, they, a lot of times I think they, they say that and they don't really mean it. If you actually look in uh, Europe, a lot of companies who complained about they were going to move their operations in response to the uh, to the cap and trade program. They didn't actually move the move their, their 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 business, and if they did, they were doing it other anyways. So I think that is a little overblown. One thing I worry about state policies is if you put a, play, a policy in place in one state, people like to talk about how it's an experiment. We're going to learn from that, but the places that you're going to put policies in that are going to be acceptable today are very different than the rest of the country. And so the We Are Still In campaign made a big, big deal uh, a couple years ago at one of the conference of parties of hashtag We Are Still In. And I think 13 states signed up to that. Those 13 states represented 5% of coal generation in the United States. So we're focusing, so the states that want to act now, like Portland, like you could have a $100 price in Portland, $100 price on carbon in Portland, and no one would blink an eye. In Bend, Oregon, maybe that's a little different. But the, the, the lessons you learn from putting a, uh, a price on carbon in places that have very little coal generation, that have almost all their emissions coming from uh, transportation and heating, I worry that people are going to look at that and say, oh, well, carbon pricing didn't work. It's not that it didn't work. It's just that it, you're focusing on high-cost abatement options. And if you actually put a carbon price on place where there's low abatement cost options, we, it would actually be, it would look much more effective. And so I worry that some people are going to, if you put a price on carbon in a state, if you do it poorly, everyone's going to say that policy doesn't work. 
even if you do it correctly, if you do it in a place that has a very different emissions profile from the rest of the country, people are going to look at, oh, it didn't work. We have to do something else. Well, do you want to just tell us a couple of the places where it is working, or what do you think that is working? Well, so a carbon price works if it reduces emissions. The question is, how much does it reduce emissions? And so if you look at British Columbia, British Columbia has had a carbon tax since 2008, started at $5, and rose at $5 a year till $30. And it's been at $30, uh, and then recently I think it's, it's been increasing again uh, in the last couple of years. And people look at the emissions profile of, they just look at the emissions and they say, oh, well, emissions are flat there. Emissions haven't gone down. Carbon pricing doesn't work. That's not true. Carbon pricing does work. It's reduced emissions from what they where they would have been otherwise. If you actually look at the evidence on vehicle purchases, if you look at gasoline consumption, you can see that people have bought more efficient vehicles and people have driven less. But you don't... The people who want to jump to conclusions, they just look at emissions and they say, they haven't fallen, it doesn't work, we need to do something else. So do you want to respond and like how New York is going to make sure that it's an effective policy? Well, um, first of all, the transportation emissions are really the 800-pound gorilla in the, in the room. Uh, that has increased some 24% across the state. We have over 11 million cars in New York State. Um, how we deal with transportation of issues, uh, buildings, uh, how do we electrify the whole economy? That's what this climate council is about. Uh, those are big challenges. I, what I would say here, just as a little educational tool, because many times when I speak, folks don't realize we've done an awful lot in our business. The electricity sector is about 17% of the CO2 footprint in the state. We've reduced CO2 60% across the state. Um, Today, in New York State, 90% of our electricity in upstate New York is carbon-free. So, I mean, there's a lot of, in this room for folks to be proud of. Uh, the markets have brought, I think, innovation. We have built 11,000 megawatts of new generation across the state and retired over 7,000. There is no more coal as coal plants in New York State. So we need to work on, on other sectors, I believe. Um, I think, back to the original question you asked me about where we are, um, we're ready to go to FERC. We believe the tariff in New York State accommodates carbon pricing. Uh, certainly some tweaks would be made to the tariff language, but right now we have a REGI program that FERC is uh, weighed in on. We believe that the, the, the stage is set for this, and uh, I thought it would be important to lay that out, that we've done the legal analysis that, that we really believe the Federal Power Act provides FERC the authority to prove this. So um, that's another milestone. Uh, an obstacle that I think we can avoid uh, moving forward. So, but I, I hear I hear you. Um, having state-owned policies is dangerous. Reggie was supposed to be a national model. Um, it did not turn out to be that way. Uh, we would like to see carbon pricing and what we've done in New York. The work has been done to be the framework for the nation, for the nation and the region. And and it's my hope, and we're not giving up hope that that someday will happen and someday soon. Yeah, no, I would say that, you know, we, we certainly believe that the states are the laboratories of democracy, right, and innovation, and certainly when it comes to uh, anything around carbon pricing or carbon policy, that's where we are seeing some terrific um, state leadership, obviously here in New York, as well as California, and even in other places such as Minnesota. So very interesting uh, areas. So let me pivot back to Bob here just about, you talked about the price on carbon, 
and sort of how do you determine what it is. So can we just drill into that a little bit more just from your experience and sort of your thought? You talked about going high and then... Well, I talked about uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think there's this simple way to think about it. Every uh, ton of carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere today, we're probably going to have to pull out at some point in the future. That's expensive. And so the price is basically that trade-off between the cost today of not putting it in versus the cost that's going to, you know, we're going to leave as a legacy. We're leaving a huge, huge liability to our kids and our grandchildren. It's inexcusable. And so when you think about where should we be pricing carbon, it's basically driven by the cost of pulling that out. And that cost today is well over, you know, several hundred dollars a ton. Now it'll come down over time. Uh, a lot of people think it could be as low as $100 a ton 20 years from now. But that tells you, it gives you an idea, but given the uncertainty, you have to err on the side of caution, which is to say a higher price. And we'll learn a lot when we price carbon. We'll learn about, you know, the demand for energy. We'll learn about new techniques. We'll give incentives. You, you know, it's so fundamental. You know what incentives are? Incentives are anything that changes behavior. Okay, people say, Bob, you're an economist, you think people are rational. I say, no, it's not that people are rational. Before I became an economist, I studied human biology. I know what people are, okay? But my dog, Bitsy, she responds to incentives. <laughs> Everyone responds to incentives. The only, and right now, the incentives go the wrong way. You understand that? So we're all moving the wrong way. Incentives, it's like, it's like forces of nature. You know, gravity pulls stuff down. Incentives drive behavior, and so when we change the incentives, we're going to change behavior, and we'll learn about what's the right price, but we have to start high. I just published a paper uh, last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was called Declining CO2 Price uh, Paths, because the idea is it's way too late to think about a slowly rising path, and I say that as a board member on the Climate Leadership Council. We have a proposal, which is a well, $40 a ton tax rising at 5% real. It's not high enough, but politically we're hoping to get bipartisan support, and I think we're actually very close to that. So people will be very surprised. I think most investors have no idea if or when or how emissions are going to be priced. And you talk about state-based approaches. We don't have time for state-based approaches. We've got to globally price emissions very high immediately. And so this is a federal problem in the U.S., we are getting support. I worry about the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Most people think, oh, the Democrats, well, the Democrats don't even talk about pricing carbon. Amy Klobuchar, thank, thank you, Amy. She talked about it at the last debate, not the one last night or whatever. But anyway, um, we, are, uh, we are talking to a lot of Republicans. They don't talk out loud. They're afraid to talk out loud, but they, they all get it. Trust me, there's, there's virtually no one, no sane person who is still in denial. Everyone sees what their eyes are telling you. And, you know, they're ready to move. So get ready for that. And Mark, do you agree on the, the going pricing at high? Or what is your sort of position? Um, I think we need to price carbon at whatever price is politically acceptable at this point. Uh, again, I don't think we have time to be, there's no, we don't know what the right price is. I mean, theoretically, there's a concept called social cost of carbon. That's the right price. but. There's so much uncertainty there. We don't know what the right price is. So we need a price. And um, I'm willing to take what, what we can. Again, we don't have time to, to, to argue. We don't have five years to argue over the price. So let's get a price in place and 
go from there. And so what is New York thinking of, Gavin, for um, how to set the price? Well, uh, the Climate Council is going to, we're going to have our first meeting next week. And under the law, uh, the state DEC has to come up with, in Jan by January, a social cost of carbon and a price. Mm -hmm. um, so that is going to be something that's a priority of mine at our first meeting is what do we have to do first? And one of it is we got to make sure that we stick to our deadlines or exceed our deadlines and get that price out sooner. Uh, DEC, I know, is working on that. Um, what, what we realize at, at IPNI is that the states like New York and California have huge policy objectives and states' rights, and they want to move forward with clean energy agendas like we are in New York. So we, as a function in markets, have to adapt to those changes. And my members understand that, and we understand the markets and the grid of 2020 is not going to be the grid of 2050. So I'm looking to the people I work for to be the innovators, to bring out the new technology, whether it's fuel cells, biodiesel, to help us achieve these ambitious goals that we have at the state, because these goals uh, need every tool in the toolbox for us to meet if we have a chance of meeting them. And uh, so, so for me, working on the social cost of car carbon is the first issue, and two, to continue working with the ISO and many other environmental groups and folks in the industry to push the debate forward in Albany on why carbon pricing is so important to our future. And so we heard a little bit about the, oh, don't call it a tax, right? I mean, that's one way that we talk about. It's also cap and dividend. We've heard all sorts of different theories. So, but just for New York State, how are you, what do you think, how do you think consumers will accept this embedded uh, cost of carbon? And sort of what are some of the ideas that you have around to, well, to I don't communicate call it, that? I don't call it a tax. Right. Um, <laughs> I go to Bob's, it's an incentive uh, to change behavior. So uh, <laughs> um, I have to tell you, there's a real political dynamic that we need to think about. Uh, you know, I talked a lot about cars a few minutes ago and buildings, and there's a focus on buildings here in New York City. There's impacts in environmental justice community. There's a lot that goes into this. Um, so looking at um, what is politically feasible is is right. Do I, I don't know what, what is politically feasible. You can't realistically say in upstate New York, we're going to increase gas prices 30 cents a gallon. It's just not going to fly. So how do we work around the edges to actually get that price? Um, so the politics of it are important, and, and, and we've got to push forward about the, the larger good to make that happen. Yeah, I'll, I'll just sort of put a little plug for some of the work that the climate group does. So we work with um, multinational companies to have them set ambitious goals to such as um, commit to 100% renewable electricity or to commit to converting their fleets to 100% EV um, as a way to send another signal to the market. So I do think that there is a, a very strong trend to be moving away from internal combustion engine, but certainly um, a price on carbon is the neatest and the cleanest way to get this done. But with that, is that going to be enough? Do we think a price on carbon, even at the highest price, is that all that's needed? Or are there other things that will be needed to address sort of this major shift that's going to be happening down the road to tackle climate change? So Bob, maybe you. Sure. I, look, I'm a, I'm a hawk on price and carbon because we're not going to get there without it. But it's not the only thing we have to do. Absolutely. We, you know, uh, we need research into low carbon technologies. We need a new grid. There's infrastructure that needs to be built. And uh, so there's plenty of things that need to be done. But the only thing I would say is, look, without a price on carbon, it's just not going to happen. We're going in the wrong direction right now. 
And we've got to immediately put a price on carbon and get everyone to have the right incentives. And then all of a sudden, you'll get all those you know, corporations, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, everyone working in the right direction and with the appropriate incentives. So it's, it's a scale issue. You know, it's, uh, it's not about planting a trillion trees. That'd be great, but that's not going to solve the problem. That'll solve 10% of the problem, just to put it in perspective. And then you mentioned a bit that if the U.S. does price carbon or New York State and we get more leadership on it, I think there's 60 carbon pricing mechanisms around the world right now. I'm looking at Mark to see if I have my numbers right. Um, do, you, do you think that will be sort of a pivot point for the rest of the world to have a mechanism that's pricing carbon? That's for you, Mark. Um, I think U.S. leadership is is a... Uh, will be essential to getting other countries on board. Other countries are certainly interested. I mean, countries you don't even expect. Uh, Colombia has a, has a carbon tax. Um, South Africa has a carbon tax. And granted, they're low. Um, but one of the reasons that they're low is that they recognize they want to do something, but they also recognize that if their main trading partners aren't doing that, that puts their, their domestic uh, industries at a disadvantage. And I think as soon as you start seeing major players like the US, put a, uh, a carbon price in place that takes away that argument in those countries. And so I think you'll see, um, you'll see more countries uh, engage in the space and you'll see the countries that do engage in the space uh, look to do more. And so just pivoting back to Bob a bit, right? Because we're seeing some major shifts in the global capital markets right now um, without a price on carbon, right? So there's definitely been some very interesting movement recently. Um, so just, Bob, going back to the way that you approach things from financial risk management, is, is this something that you're still finding difficult for people to understand? Or you were saying that everybody has their eyes wide open, that this is the necessary mechanism um, to properly send the right signals to the market? Well, I think we're, we're at a tipping point. I agree with Mark. The rest of the world knows we have to do this. Most of them have said we're ready to go, but they're waiting for the U.S. to provide leadership. And, uh, and you can see it, I, I mean, in a lot of different places. You're right. There's a lot going on. A lot of corporations like BP just made an announcement. Uh, all the major oil uh, companies signed an agreement with the Pope last summer to transparently uh, press for pricing carbon. They're supporting the Climate Leadership Council, both uh, in, in being a part of it. And the Pope? Not the, <laughs> no, the major oil companies. You know, BP, Exxon, Total, Conoco. If you look at our list of sponsors, it's basically across all of corporate America. Just a couple of weeks ago, Goldman Sachs, my old company, and uh, uh, J.P. Morgan joined. And, uh, and, you know, it's not just the oil companies. You've got J&J &J and Unilever, and you've got the environmental community. I, I like to say to people, look, we've got as our founding members, everyone from ExxonMobil to WWF. How many people aren't part of that coalition? It's everyone gets it. On the CFTC uh, committee, we've got 34 representatives of the banks, the insurance companies, some of the oil companies, the agriculture companies, some academics, and, and so on. We, the first meeting we had, I of course said, we've got to price carbon. Is there anyone who disagrees? No one disagreed. Every single person on that committee, and it's not just representing themselves, they're all representing their companies. They all agree. It's so, it's widespread, everyone gets it. 
the people who, you know, it's, it's a few politicians in Washington who haven't gotten the memo, and they're getting the memo right now. I mean, you can see the change in the Republicans. So, you know, I'm very optimistic, and we've got a plan we're talking about. I could go into that, but we've got uh, tremendous support, both public and behind the scenes, and so uh, I, I think we're going to get there. I, I want to be optimistic about that, but again, you know, we should have done this a long time ago. It's very sad what we're doing to the planet. So since we have a tremendous amount of um, agreement that it needs to, a carbon price needs to happen, um, and you sort of touched on it, there's just maybe a few folks that are making it difficult to get it done. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we'll talk later about, you know, how we can all work to do that. And then, um, Gavin, you mentioned also that we need to get it done in New York State and that maybe there are a couple hurdles still for us here. So could you just sort of respond to maybe Bob's optimism and, and how well, does that play out in New York? I know everybody's looking for controversy up here, but I think we're all on the same page about how to, how to proceed and why we need to proceed in the urgency. Um, we have an, uh, you know, a state policy of now promoting 3,000 megawatts of storage, 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind, carbon-free electricity, renewable targets. We can't get there without carbon pricing. It just is impossible. So if we want to have offshore wind, we want to have these new investments, and we want to provide a cleaner environment for EJ communities and lower-income areas where we have less efficient power plants, this is something we have to do. So that type of message in a progressive state like New York is something that I think is a talking point that we all need to use. Uh, this will make the environment a better place for New York. Um, the governor talks about big things all the time, big accomplishments. This fits right up there with one of the biggest accomplishments he could have ever had by saying we're the first state in the country to actually put a price on carbon. And when New York does it, I think you'll see other folks move. Uh, we need to do it quickly and we need to do it right. Okay. So I, I see people are probably eager to ask some questions. I'm going to ask one more of, of each of you, the same question. So what is the one important topic that we are not talking about, about carbon pricing? So what's not really getting enough attention? So in full disclosure, I flagged this question. So I'll start. But <laughs> um, I think uh, everyone's so focused on how do we get a price on carbon, people aren't talking necessarily about how we keep a price on carbon. So political durability. Um, in Australia, there was a, a, a carbon price, and the conservatives ran explicitly on removing the carbon price. They won. They removed the carbon price. In Canada, the conservatives did the same thing. They lost. They didn't win. But they actually won big in Alberta. Um, where where this, this is a very sensitive issue because of all the, the, the jobs in the oil and gas industry. And so there's going to be pushback, even if we get a policy put in place, there's going to be pushback. And so I think part of this means we really do need to look for a bipartisan solution. I don't think that just uh, um, some people seem to think that it's just if the Democrats get a president, 60 senators, and the House, that's it, we're done. We can end there. But we saw that with Obamacare, that's not, we had that with Obamacare and healthcare, and we see where we are today. And so I think that we need to think just as much, when we're designing the policy, we need to think just as hard about how to get it passed as how to keep it. I was gonna say we managed to be pretty durable about fossil fuel subsidies. <laughs> um, so Bob, do you have anything that maybe wasn't uh, 
Well, there's, there's a lot of different aspects to it, but I'll say how do we get a globally harmonized price because that's what we really need. And I would say the answer there is aviation. Aviation is an interesting industry. It's a global industry, obviously. Uh, aviation has tried since the first days of aviation to reduce its fuel, so therefore it's tried to make itself as efficient as possible. There's very little efficiency left, and there's no real alternative to burning fossil fuels. You can't, batteries will not take us uh, over, you know, oceans. And, uh, and the, and the uh, capital stock of aviation lasts for 50 years. So today, aviation is about 2.5% of the uh, total emissions, but in another 30 years, it could be 70 or 80% of total emissions. If you think of the atmosphere as a reservoir that has a limited capacity to safely absorb emissions, we're filling it up and we're wasting that capacity. Aviation is an industry that needs that capacity. So it has every incentive to lead create a price in aviation, and if they create a price in aviation, it'll be obviously a globally harmonized price. And then what we can do is, uh, you know, basically use political pressure to force, uh, not force, but encourage countries around the world to harmonize to that price. So that's, uh, that's how I think we can get to a globally harmonized uh, and appropriate price for emissions. Um, one of the things that, that um, makes New York ripe for this change is we're a one-state ISO. Across this country, you know, in New England and PJM, you have six or eight governors. You all have to get on the same page. That's another reason New York should, should be pursuing this policy. The thing that we don't really talk enough about is something that is a third rail subject today. It, it wasn't in the past, but... I, how are we going to deal with natural gas? Uh, if we're going to have intermittent resources, new technology, you need to make the system as reliable as possible. We, we, we need natural gas in the system. We need clean natural gas. We can't say we run the system in New York without gas, in my opinion. Um, and how do you have an honest debate about the future of gas to keep the system reliable is, is, is something that we don't talk enough about. And I, and I also think um, policymakers and um, elected officials need to get away from laying out, we want this and we want X amount of that and we want X amount of this. We want, we want the markets to bear and send the signal so that we attract maybe the technology that we don't know that's out there today. Uh, you know, there are things in the horizon on hydrogen and other technologies that could be the answer to some of our problems, but if we prescribe the solution before we let the market work, um, I think that that's going to have some unintended consequences. And ultimately hurt consumers. So, uh, those are a couple couple thoughts that I have. Super, yeah. And that's one thing people talk about: direct air capture, um, which I know is actually talked about quite here in in New York. And some of the best uh, research is done here. Um, but that's very hard for them to move it forward without a price on carbon. Correct. Very difficult to get that done. So, we'd love to open this up to questions. I think there is a roving mic. Hopefully, people will introduce themselves, but have short questions 